Hello, everyone. As uh, Lauren said, my name's Luke, and I'm really, really excited to be able to share a message with you. Let me adjust this thing and get it to my heart. Um, thank you so much, Ollie, for a fantastic time of worship. Thanks for leading us in song, mate. Okay. Well, I want to start by saying it's good to be together. It's good to be together. Yes, wherever you are, we're together. Right now, we're doing the same thing. We're sitting under the same message together. Although we're scattered all over the city, perhaps all over the nation, maybe even some tuning in from other places far off in the globe, we're all right now doing the same thing. We're united in our quest to learn more about Jesus and what it is to follow Him. Well, as a church, we've been journeying so far through this year through the book of Mark. It's been an exciting journey. We've been learning about Jesus Christ, the man who is God. What an extraordinary claim. You, you better be able to back up a claim like that. In fact, speaking of this claim, the professor of mathematics at Oxford University, John Lennox, he has this to say of Jesus. The fact that Jesus did not fit in, just think about this as we read this for a second. The fact that Jesus did not fit in is one of the reasons that I am convinced of his claim to be the son of God. It would have required exceptional genius to have invented the character of Jesus and put into his mouth the parables that are in themselves literary masterpieces. The more we know about the leading cultures of the time, the more we see that if the character of Jesus had not been a historical reality, well, then no one could have invented him for the simple reason that he did not fit into any of those cultures. Jesus of the Gospels fitted nobody's concept of a hero. Greek, Roman, Jew all found him to be the very opposite of their ideal. I mean, Jesus is literally God out of this world coming in to answer the question that John Osborne asked 20 odd, years, 20 odd years ago, what if God was one of us? Well, Jesus answers that question for us as God becomes man and shows us what that's like. Well, there's been so much going on of late. I wonder if it would be helpful for us to just take a second and catch up to speed in the book of Mark. Well, chapter one and verse one, Mark starts by uh, putting to us, he, he pulls no punches and he, he leads with his punchline. He says, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God, come as our Savior King. Jesus is the Son of God, come as our Savior King. And then what Mark does, and very skillfully I might add, is he spends the rest of uh, the first half of this book, that's where we're journeying together as a church, really substantiating, backing up, showing us why this, this statement, Jesus is the Son of God, come as our Savior King, is true. And he does it in all different ways. He starts off by saying, hey guys, you know in the Old Testament, it says that uh, before the King comes, there would be a herald, a, a messenger who will come before. And he says, can't you see? That's John the baptizer. That's what John the baptizer is doing. He, he says, when the King comes, we know from the scriptures, he'll have extraordinary authority. And then he shows us through, through the book, Jesus' authority. He shows us Jesus' authority over people. Jesus says, come and follow me. And people do. They come and they follow him. Jesus has authority over evil. He casts out demons. Jesus has authority over sickness. There's entire villages of sick people who come to Christ and he heals them. Jesus has authority. He has authority to teach the truth. 
Jesus uh, has authority as a teacher. In fact, when Jesus taught, they said, we've never seen a teacher like this. It's like he, he has this ability to, to, to pull together life and truth and bring them together in such a way as they renew people's mind. Pennies drop in people's hearts and lives are changed. Jesus has an unprecedented authority. And last week, as Paulie was preaching, he spoke about Jesus' authority to even forgive sins. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's a godlike quality. You and I, we can't forgive sins in a vertical sense, but Jesus does it in the truest sense. He, he, he is a king with unlimited and uh, never seen before authority. And today we're gonna get a glimpse of what this kingdom looks like when it comes into our lives and, and how we should respond as Christ followers to, to walk into this kingdom. So let's, uh, let's uh, just to give you a roadmap of where we're going today, we're gonna see how to enter this kingdom. We're gonna see how to oppose this kingdom and then how to go on growing to become like the king of this kingdom today. That's where we're going. Let's look together. Mark chapter two, if you wanna follow along in your own Bibles, verse 13 to 22. Let's read together as we, as we open God's word. And he, this is Jesus, went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. There was something about Jesus that was relevant, that, that people loved to listen to him. He was an attractive guy to, to dial into. He, he, he continues, he says, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. I, I, as I read that, I, I was struck by the question, what if Jesus was living life at the, at the frantic pace that you and I do in the 21st century? What if Jesus' mind was preoccupied with all the agenda items coming up on his calendar, with all the things that the mental bandwidth required to juggle all of these priorities that you and I often feel? Would, it, would Jesus have been able to stop and to notice Levi sitting in this tax booth, or maybe Levi would have just been a blur as he walked by. Anyway, Jesus thankfully is living uh, according to a different rhythm and he stops and he notices Levi and Levi follows him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, now we meet some new characters in the story. Well, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. It's, it's kind of like why we as South Africans at the moment are doing everything we can to to prevent the spread, to flatten the curve, because those who are sick into the future are gonna need medical care. And by us doing all that we can, we're prioritizing them being able to get that which we need. Jesus says, those who are sick, they're the ones who need the doctor. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and the people came to him and they said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests feast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. It's totally inappropriate to be fasting at a joyous occasion like a wedding. The days will come, however, when the bridegroom is taken from them. This Greek word, it's like a violent final word. The bridegroom is taken from them. This is not normal for a wedding, by the way and they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And if he does, the patch 
tears away, another violent final word in the Greek from it, new from the old, and, and a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. I wonder as you sit in your home or in your room, would you pray with me as we unpack God's word to us? Father, as we sit under your word, in our rooms, in our homes, in the city, scattered across the globe. Lord, thank you, Father, that you meet with us. And would you do that right now, God? I pray your presence in every home, in every room, that you would take your word and speak truth to every heart as we ask, who is this man, Jesus? And what does it look like to follow him? Ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Okay, so guys, the big idea today is we become like Jesus by following him wholeheartedly. We become like Jesus by following him wholeheartedly. I've got some mates who are very serious social poker players. I know that seems a bit of a, a juxtaposition, serious and social poker players, but they are very serious, but they only play it socially. Anyway, and I'm not much of a poker player, but I know this, there comes a point in every hand, in every game, where you've got to go all in, where you've got to stake it all, you've got to risk it all, you've got to back the hand that you've got in an effort to win the game. And, and this passage is a little bit like that. It's an opportunity for us as Christ followers, or maybe if you're looking in, wondering who is this Jesus, to go all in in our followership of Him. We meet two groups of people that I wanna focus on today. We meet the outsiders, the sinners and the tax collectors, and we meet the insiders, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And they show us a few things. They show us how do we receive this kingdom? How do we oppose this kingdom? And how do we grow in this kingdom in our, in our likeness to Jesus? So this passage, begins with a surprising supper. Let's look together as we see our first point today. We enter the kingdom through the door of grace. Let's read from verse 14 together. And as he, this is Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. So, so here's the picture. Levi is sitting in his tax collector's booth and he's taking people's money. That's what Levi did. And of all the people in the crowd, of all the people in the vicinity that day, of all of the people he could have picked, Jesus stops at Levi. I mean, this is, this is staggering. This is scandalous even. Why, why so staggering? Well, because Levi was a tax collector. Now it's true, it's true. Tax collectors through the ages have never been the city's favorite citizens. But, uh, but at this time in history, it was particularly bad. You see, Israel had been occupied by the Romans. And so the tax collectors would take money from the local people and they would give it to their Roman occupiers. And, and the tax collector was entitled to add a little bit extra to, to kind of line his own pocket. That's how he earned an income. He basically made a living by, um, by oppressing and, and aiding the oppression of his own people. He was, uh, he was known as someone who was notoriously dishonest. In fact, tax collectors were like the opposite of Robin Hood. They would steal from the poor, take from the poor to give to the rich. But the worst of the worst tax collectors were the Jewish guys. The Jewish tax collectors who were extorting money from their own people and giving it to the Romans, they were hated and loathed in their society. They were in fact banned from being witnesses in court. They were even excluded from their own synagogues. They, they, were, they were even ousted from their families. In fact, one person is speaking of tax collectors. One commentator said that if a tax collector touched your house, your house itself became unclean. 
Kids, if you've been reading the books, The Diary of a Wimpy Kid, maybe you've heard of The Cheese Touch. The Cheese Touch is the story of a young kid who drops a piece of cheese at school. And for a month, that cheese lies there and it gets all horrible. And one day, a poor child is walking along, trips and falls and touches the cheese. They get the cheese touch. And from then on, when that child touched another child, they got the cheese touched. And obviously, the first child was free. That's how the cheese touch worked. Well, Matthew had the cheese touch. When he even touched your house, you were, you, were, you were unclean. Tax collectors were hated in that culture. And of all the people there that day, Jesus picks Levi. It's just, it's mind-blowing, but it gets worse. It wasn't just Levi. There was a whole party of tax collectors that Jesus goes and hangs out with. It's not surprising to see the tax collectors and sinners on their own as they eat. Well, because no one else wanted to eat with these guys. No one wanted to be near them. But what is surprising is that Jesus does. Jesus does go and join them. Can you see the cultural upheaval that this new kingdom brings? this new way of living. And, and, and Jesus is even reclining at the table. I mean, did you see that reclining? Reclining is like, that's like feet up on the couch stuff. That's like head back, rubbing your belly, maybe not rubbing your belly, but, but, but it's, I am comfortable here with these people. It's a show of solidarity. It is scandalous. Now, if Jesus was just hanging out with Levi, you'd say, okay, that's the exception. Maybe Levi's dad knew Jesus and Levi was in a bad way and his dad was trying to help. But Jesus, not just with Levi. It's all of these tax collectors and sinners. This is not an exception. This is a new rule. My point is that this new kingdom is a kingdom where outsiders are invited in. Why? Well, the point is, because it's a kingdom of radical grace. It is a kingdom that is founded on radical grace. We must enter this kingdom through the doorway of grace because when grace is received, it changes everything. It changes everything both vertically as well as horizontally. Grace received changes everything vertically because it, it, it enables us into relationship with God. This is so much different than a presidential pardon. A presidential pardon the president uh, extends the pardon to someone who's being pardoned and then they go off and they live their lives. The president at a presidential pardon never says, right, you've been pardoned. Now come to my house. Come, let's eat together. Let's hang out. Let's do relationship together. What Jesus is doing here is Jesus is extending grace, but it's grace into relationship. Grace, when we enter into the kingdom through grace, we, we get to, to live in personal relationship with Christ. I wonder, how are you doing there? I mean, if ever there was a moment to stop and reflect, I think for so many of us, life has maybe, it's been interrupted. And as all the dust clouds have gone into the air, maybe you've looked around and you've realized there's a vast gap between you and Christ. This is the moment to put right with God. But the way we do that is by entering into the kingdom through the doorway of grace. Oh, but grace received by Christ followers too affects everything horizontally too. It, 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 it births a new kind of community. You see, here the followers of Jesus are, are hanging out too with these outsiders. There's this coming together, the kind of coming together which the world had never seen before, by the way. This is an altogether new kind of community. And it's the kind of church community that we are seeking to build in our city as we seek to become extenders of grace in this city. In fact, historians tell us it's one of the reasons behind Christianity's rampant spread in the early centuries. It's why the gospel grew so much. There's the historical letter of a man named Diognetus who's addressed in the second century. Diognetus is not a follower of Jesus, but he's intrigued. He wants to know more. 
And so he writes to a friend who's in the know and he says, tell me about these Christians. Tell me about these, these people who follow Christ. And uh, this is the letter that Diognetus re- receives back from his, uh, from his mate. One of the things he says is they're a third race. They're not pagans, they're not Jews. This is a new way of living. This is a new kind of humanity that we've never seen before. They live in an altogether different way. In fact, uh, this is what he says. He says, as citizens, they share in all the things with others and and, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. It's like they're going through everything the city is going through right now. But yet their ultimate joy and their ultimate security is not tethered to this world right now. It's tethered to the coming world that they know they're made for, their true home in heaven. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Admittedly, that, that's not a ridiculously high moral bar. But, but what you do is you get the idea is that they have a new kind of morality, these people. They have, and, and, and catch this, they have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after their flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. It's not that they are so heavenly minded, they are of no earthly good. No, no, they're rooted in what's going on as a country, as a, as, a, as a globe and as a city, but yet they ultimately are tethered to heaven as well. This reality secures them in the midst of all that they face. They love all and are persecuted by all. I mean, just think about that statement. They love all and yet are persecuted by all. They had a common table, but not a common bed. Jesus is a single dude. He's incredibly conservative with his body, but yet he's shockingly liberal with his table. He's incredibly generous and friendly to other people. And it's this vision of a new social generosity that is birthed and and bathed in grace that Jesus unleashes on the world. And it's why Christianity took the world by storm. We enter the kingdom through the doorway of grace. Grace connects us to God in relationship vertically, but it releases us into the world generously to, to, be, a, to be the kind of church, to be the kind of people who, who, who push the boundaries to extend grace to others. But this is where many get tripped up. Let's have a look at our second point. We've, we've seen the outcasts, but now let's take a look at the insiders. Uh, my second point today is we oppose the kingdom through self-righteous religiosity. We enter the kingdom through the doorway of grace, but we oppose the kingdom through self-righteous religiosity. And verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to the, his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In fact, the, the, new, the New Living Translation, one I often read from, says, why does he eat with such scum? He uses such strong language. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call the sinners. Okay, so we've met the outsiders. Now let's meet the insiders. And if I can let you in on a little secret. What we see through the book of Mark is actually that the outsiders are the ones who are invited in and the insiders are the one who kind of, they're the ones who opt out as the story goes on. It's the religious self-righteous people who struggle most to enter this kingdom. You see, the religious people have a problem with who's on Jesus' guest list. They take exception to who's on the guest list. They think like this, before you know God, you've got to clean your life up. Before you can get to know God, you've got to perform a certain, to a certain standard. You've got to become a particular type of person. You've got to behave a particular way and then only will God accept you, which is the complete opposite of what Jesus is modeling. 
And it's why they fail to recognize him. You see, religiosity says, if you clean up your life, then God will accept you. If you're a good person, then you'll be good enough for God. Religion says you enter the kingdom through your own cleanness and your own goodness. But Jesus is exactly the opposite. He says, you receive grace first. And then this grace, this living, alive, dynamic grace goes to work within you. And it changes who you are from the inside. And that produces this different kind of human being, this new way of living. Religiosity attaches acceptance through external activities. But Jesus attaches acceptance through receiving Forgiveness. And, and think about the, the way in which self-righteous religiosity builds an entirely different kind of community. Self-righteous religiosity builds boundaries to keep people out, where grace builds, builds bridges to bring people in. Religiosity finds its bearings based on where other people are. In other words, I'm not quite where I want to be, but I'm, at, least I'm, at least I'm not where those people are. At least I'm not where that guy is. Christ followers, on the other hand, we find our bearings based on who God is, this perfect, sinless, extraordinary God and this amazing, perfect heaven which he has prepared. And the fact that when we look at this God and when we look at heaven, we see our own unfitness therefore. Because in order for me to be, to be brought into there, if you were to bring me in the way I am, heaven would cease to be heaven. It would no longer be perfect. I would, I would break it. I would mess it up. I would, it wouldn't be long before I hurt somebody. And so either heaven has got to come down, heaven's got to be lowered, or I have to be elevated. And I can't elevate myself in such a way. I can't change who I am. And so therefore, as, as a Christ follower, I see the perfect God. I see the amazing heaven He's calling us to. And I'm aware of my need for His grace to do what I cannot do in and of myself. Religious people get into the trap of comparison. You see, you see John's disciples and the Pharisees said to Jesus, well, you know, or said to Jesus' disciples, well, we're fasting. Why aren't you guys fasting? You know, we're doing this. Why, why don't you do this? There, there's this self-righteous comparison and comparison is the thief of all joy. The bottom line is the result of religiosity in the long run is it, is it builds a kind of people that, see others as less than themselves. It creates us and them camps. And it's the opposite of a community that is bathed in grace. Before we go to my last point, let me just do a little audit with us to see how you're doing in terms of self-righteous religiosity and being a person rooted in grace. Here's a few questions I've been thinking through in my own life. When someone else in your life, maybe even someone you don't like, when someone else comes into blessing or a sudden uh, fortune into their life, do you, do you think to yourself, whoa, God, whoa, what's up with that? Uh, why, why, why don't I? Um, you know, I've, I've been pretty good. Why, 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 why couldn't something like that come out my way? Or, or maybe, maybe someone else in your life comes into misfortune. You think to yourself, well, you know, they had it coming. You know, I've been saying this for some time now. Do, do you ever catch yourself asking this question? God, why would you welcome me? God, why would you welcome me? When you ask that, I'm so undeserving. You know what it does? Yet you did welcome me. It produces such gratitude and joy and delight in your heart. The, the, the person who's anchored in grace is a delightful, grateful person. You, you, when, you, when you think of God's, God's looking, when you think of how God thinks when he looks at you, does God have a smile on his face? Or, or is God serious and you're living under the weight of his frown? 
Bottom line is, when we enter Jesus' kingdom through the doorway of grace, it produces a totally different kind of person than the Pharisees, the, the religious insiders who were actually outside, who, who were living out their religious self-righteous um, faith. And they couldn't see Jesus. He was right there in front of them. Yet through their self-righteousness, the self-righteous lens of their goggles, they could not recognize who he was. But here's the thing. Now that we've entered through the doorway of grace, is grace then opposed to effort? Is grace opposed to effort? No, 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 not at all. This is what we're gonna see in our last point. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, but not opposed to effort. Our last point is we become like Jesus when we follow this King wholeheartedly. We become like this King when we follow Him wholeheartedly. Let's read together verse 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And if he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into an old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine will be destroyed. And so, if, and so are the skins. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Jesus gives us two pictures here. I mean, there's three, but we only have time for two here as to how to enter, how to grasp, how to grow in this kingdom. The first picture is of a new cloth patch that is then sewn over an old garment. And what happens is this new cloth, it behaves differently to the old one. And, and in the washing machine of life, they're torn away from each other. And the second picture Jesus gives us is, is of an old wineskin. Now we don't really walk around with wineskins these days, but maybe if you live in Cape Town, you've got a bit of an idea what a wineskin is. A wineskin is like, um, it's like a pup suck. A pup suck is that, uh, that silver inside bag that's inside a box wine, right? That's a pup suck. And, uh, but this one is not silver. This one is made out of some kind of fabric. And, and what Jesus is saying is you don't put new wine into an old pup suck because what happens is when the yeast goes to work eating the sugars in the wine, it produces carbon dioxide, which is the same thing that makes your Coke and your Sprite fizzy. And eventually this new wine into this old pup suck will blow up. And it will explode because what Jesus is saying is this new thing, this new kingdom is incompatible with your old you. My point is this, what doesn't work is to take a little bit of Jesus and tack him onto your old life. A Jesus as a top up, a Jesus as a missing piece. I've got 99 pieces of this puzzle sorted. It's just this one thing I'm struggling with. So Jesus, if you can just come in and fix this one thing for me, then, then, I'll, then I'll have it all together. That's what the Pharisees kind of thought of in their self-righteousness or this one. Maybe a Jesus tacked on to our already too busy, overly full lives. And then we read about Matthew or Levi. You see, Levi it shows us what it looks like to follow Jesus. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and he followed him. What was Jesus' invitation to Levi? It wasn't to become a fan. It wasn't to become a stalker. It was an invitation to pattern his entire life, his whole existence on who Jesus is, to become like him. It was, a, it was an invitation to literally to drop the old cloth 
to drop the old wineskin and to become something altogether new in this new kingdom. It was an invitation threefold, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus and to do what Jesus does, to be with him, to spend time with him, to, to, to get involved in his life, to eat meals with him, to walk with him, to ask him questions, to grapple with him, an invitation to, uh, to be with him, an invitation to become like him, where actually within your very same desires and your nature starts to reflect Christ. And finally, to do as Jesus did, to, to have your life when you live actually look like him. In fact, there was an old Hebrew saying, a blessing over a disciple that they used to speak. They'd say, may you be caked in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, you, you're so close to him. You're walking so in sync with him that, that the, the very dust that comes off of him cakes to you because that's how in sync you are. This was what Jesus was inviting Levi to do. C.S. Lewis says this of this. C.S. Lewis says to us, imagine yourself as a living house and God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. It's like, God, what are you doing? There's this economic realities. This is hurting me in a, in a mental way, in a heart way. It's, it's abominable pain. And he does not seem, and it does not seem to make any sense. Why, God, is this happening? What, what on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little country cottage, but he is building a palace where he intends to come and live by himself. It's tempting to think of all I need is a little bit of a little bit of Jesus. You know, I'm mostly okay. I just need a kind of Jesus top up to get me over the line, a tweak here or there. What Jesus is not inviting us to is into a bit of cosmetic work. Jesus is inviting Levi to follow him and Levi gets it. Friends, what if, what if the next 21 days, well, there's a few done already, but what if the next 21 days is a second chance? What if it's an opportunity to, to just stop for a while. As the frantic like river of life that just pulls us along so fast. We're like a pebble and every now and again we touch the bottom and we're changed. But mostly it's the river of culture that is shaping us. And every now and again, it's, it's these moments in Jesus where we're changed. What if this is an opportunity, these 21 days, a second chance to stop to wholeheartedly give ourselves to following Jesus, to literally reorientate our entire lives around who Christ is? What if it's an opportunity to drop some things that we should never have picked up in the first place? What if it's an opportunity to embrace some new habits that form us in new ways? What if we seize this opportunity to become like Jesus? It's exactly what the Pharisees couldn't do. It's exactly what Levi managed to. See, here's the thing. Levi, the son of Elpheus, has another name. You probably figured it out by now, maybe you have, that this dirty, rotten scoundrel of a tax collector is also known as Matthew. 
Matthew, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Matthew, who literally wrote the first book of the New Testament. Matthew, who penned the Sermon of the Mount. If you don't know the Sermon on the Mount, it's that literary masterpiece in Matthew 5 to Matthew chapter 7. The very same Matthew who was sitting in that tax collector's booth became Matthew, who became the preacher to the Jewish people so that many came to faith. The very same people he was excluded from, he spent his life preaching to on the person of Jesus. Why? Because he wholeheartedly followed Jesus and his whole world got turned right side up. What if this is our gap to come to Jesus freshly and say, Jesus, make me more like you. We enter the kingdom through the doorway of grace. We oppose the kingdom through religious self-righteousness, but we follow and we become like the king as we wholeheartedly embrace him and give ourselves to following him. Can I pray for us as we land? Jesus, hey man, it is scary, Lord. It is unnerving at times. It is, uh, there's just so much unknown in this moment, but that which we do know is that we've got to stop. Life cannot carry on as usual. God, in this moment, would you come and would you help us to become more like you? God, would you, would you cause things, habits, uh, ways of living, uh, levels of anxiety and, and all the things we constantly feel like we're always on. There's these habits that, that perhaps have, are so reflective of our world, but yet not helping us become more like you, God. Would you cause these things to lose their appeal? God, would you guard us from the distraction of, of more, more uh, series, more Netflix, more other things that would just distract us, God? And would you... God, would you give us this moment as an opportunity to wholeheartedly fixate on you, to become over these coming days people who are in transit, who are in under construction as we become more and more like you, Jesus. And so freshly today, Jesus, we sign up. Wholeheartedly, we're yours. Jesus, go to work on us, we pray, as we do all that we can to become like you. We ask this in your name, Christ, and for your glory. Amen.